with a wingspan like that, I'm likely to decapitate um, some of my fellow panel members. Um, great. So, so I'm, a, I'm a little bit croaky at the, at the moment, if only um, because of the event that Pierre mentioned this morning, this arrest of the uh, Rwandan uh, head of intelligence, which meant that in an event about how academics engage with journalists, I'd just like to say to journalists, please don't ring academics at 5.30 in the morning, because um, you may not get the most sensible reply. So... Um, so um, I'm a bit worried, actually, about what I said to the BBC at 6 o'clock this morning um, about that particular case, but I guess I'll, I'll find out um, a bit later on. Um, and also, we, obviously, um, thank you to OTJR uh, for putting on uh, this fantastic event and, and for the chance to, to come back to, to Oxford um, and to just very briefly speak about some issues concerning uh, advocacy in the uh, role of, of media and, and transitional justice. And... I think for those of us who work in transitional justice, the role of, of advocacy is something that is already very much at the forefront of our minds because uh, advocacy organisations and uh, particularly human rights organisations have played such a key role in, in the development of this field uh, and developing many of the key institutions, many of the, the key norms uh, within transitional justice. So it's inevitable that uh, we have to think through the role that advocacy groups actually play in the way that, that we analyse uh, transitional justice. And today what I'm specifically interested in is the nexus between uh, three branches or three organisations, human rights groups, uh, media and international courts and tribunals. And I want to look at the way in which uh, these three bodies uh, reinforce one another. And I want to argue that I think this is actually a highly problematic uh, relationship, that the nexus between uh, human rights advocates, media and, and courts, uh, in particular, has led to two major problems. One is uh, a simplification of how we understand conflict and societies uh, dealing with conflict. And secondly, uh, a tendency to advocate for very narrow transitional justice uh, mechanisms to the detriment of a much wider discussion about what particular societies might need in transitional justice. So I think this is a, a highly problematic relationship and it plays out in, in those two major ways. And in order to counter uh, these problems, I think we need a much more critical appraisal of the role of advocacy within transitional justice and the influence that it exerts over both the media and the way that justice plays out. I'm going to build this argument in, in two main parts. Firstly, I want to, I guess, briefly describe this relationship uh, between these, these three uh, bodies, uh, why it is that advocacy plays such a key role in, in all of this, how human rights groups are, in fact, uh, deployed in transitional justice and in the media. And then secondly, I want to critique that relationship and highlight uh, some of the problems that, that I believe it, uh, it, it produces. So firstly... What is this relationship between human rights advocates, uh, the media and, and courts, and, and how has this come about? I think a lot of this has to do with a, a particular uh, view 
of human rights organizations that has developed over time. There's a certain expectation of who they are and, and how they operate. And it explains why groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, just to pick two of these organizations, are, are so influential in our debates about transitional justice. I think this is mainly because these groups are often seen as our eyes and ears on the ground. That there, there's a, almost a mythology, I think, built uh, around these types of groups that they somehow represent us, whoever we may be. They're the people that we can trust to get close to the action in difficult parts of the world, affected by conflict, affected by repression. Uh, and to a large extent, we self-identify with these organizations. Uh, we, we see them as doing the kinds of things that we can't do. And they report back to us in, in, in a way that, that we can understand. Groups like Amnesty and, and Human Rights Watch are often expected to be neutral and, and dispassionate, uh, while also being very close to the action. They're very proximate to the cases that, that they're analyzing. And, and so there's an emphasis on their neutrality and their on-the-groundness. And I think these are two of the key characteristics that are often ascribed to them, and it's part of the reason why they're so influential and, and why they're, they're ascribed the kind of value uh, that they are. And what's important, I think, for our discussion in a conference like this is that I think that is also the view of, of human rights advocates and human rights organisations uh, that is depicted in much of the media treatment of conflict and also in the ways that international criminal tribunals and courts deal with conflict. If we look at media and courts, these human rights organisations are often treated with an enormous amount of respect and depicted as neutral and being deeply embedded in the societies that they're reporting uh, upon. And we see this manifested, for example, in the way that much of the international media will directly report uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International investigations on the ground, to such an extent that the reports of those organisations are often seen as events in and of themselves. And you'll see, you know, for example, Human Rights Watch will put out a major report on, let's say, Syria or Congo, and the BBC will pick up on that as a headline event in and of itself. Human Rights Watch says X, Y, and Z. Even if this might refer to a conflict that's been raging for, for many, many years, the, the emergence of a particular advocate organisation's report is, is, is something newsworthy in, in and of itself. We've also seen the extensive use of, of human rights reports in the ways that international courts and tribunals have structured their work. And... The International Criminal Court, I think, quite explicitly has talked about the influence of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, especially in the way that they've structured most of their investigations in Africa to date. Um, I'm in the process of, of finishing a book on the ICC's work in Uganda and Congo, and in the early days uh, interviewing members of the prosecution investigative teams in those two places, they talked about uh, the extent to which they used, right from the outset, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International reports to select uh, which cases they would focus on, which suspects were worthy of prosecution, the types of evidence that they would uh, seek in the field. It was almost as though the human rights groups had written the first draft of the prosecu prosecution investigations, and then the investigators would go into the field and kind of build upon that in a judicially acceptable fashion. So... Right from the outset, key prosecutorial processes were being shaped by the work of, of these international human rights groups. And as I've suggested, I think there's a mutual reinforcement between human rights organisations, the, the media and courts. We also see this relationship building in the way that human rights organisations now respond to these other processes. So human rights groups, like the ones I've cited here, often publish their reports explicitly with the media in mind. The, the type of language, the style of their delivery is often generated to capture headlines, to try and make a splash. These are not necessarily expressed in highly sober or dispassionate ways, quite to the contrary. There's often very an emotional uh, recapitulation of evidence uh, with a, a media audience explicitly in mind. And increasingly, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, I mean, not to pick just on them, but uh, to cite them as examples, uh, will use social media to also propagate their reports um, in order to, to gain the widest uh, possible coverage. Increasingly, and I think maybe this is even more salient for our discussion here, uh, human rights organisations are increasingly conducting their own investigations with international courts and tribunals in mind. 
And this, I think, has been a significant shift for Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, especially in, in the last six or seven years. And you can hear it in many of the interviews that their principal actors give and in the way that their reports are, are structured, that there is an explicit notion that their own evidence may get picked up in the courtroom. And this, I think, is a really fascinating development. It's, it's an example of mission creep, uh, I would argue. And it goes back to something that we were talking about in several sessions yesterday about the different types of audiences that institutions pick up over time. That their work in gathering evidence and information may have been geared towards one audience, uh, say, a decade ago, but new audiences have, have crept in. And a key audience for human rights groups is, is increasingly uh, international courts uh, and tribunals. Um, and I would argue in just a moment that I think that's highly problematic, that actually this probably is not the role um, of these human rights groups to, to, to be building uh, criminal cases. And of course, human rights organisations are explicitly uh, uh, vocal advocates for international courts and tribunals. So going back to the Rome conference that established the ICC, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and others were right at the forefront of pushing for the court. And whenever those institutions are criticised publicly, as we've seen in the Bashir case in South Africa in recent days, these institutions have been in the press uh, calling for the, the support uh, for uh, our international prosecutorial mechanisms. So that there is also not only a, uh, an idea of using their evidence in the courtroom, but actually explicitly supporting these institutions when, when they seem to be in trouble. So this is a very important relationship between uh, the media, between human rights advocates, uh, and, and between courts. And it's one of, of mutual reinforcement, I would argue. Secondly, and finally, uh, I think, though, this, this relationship is highly problematic. And in a context of thinking about the relations between practice and media and transitional justice, I think we really need to be much more critical about the role of advocacy in all of that than, than perhaps we, we have been uh, to date. And I want to argue that there's often a a conflation of the idea of advocacy and analysis. Often an expectation that some of the best analysis of conflict zones comes from these human rights uh, advocacy groups and, and that I think we need to treat that with, with a high degree of scepticism. And specifically, we need to be sceptical of the two main characteristics that are ascribed to these organisations, namely neutrality and their on-the-groundness. I want to argue that actually I think these organisations are far from neutral they have their own explicit political agendas. They have their own, I think, complicated web of, of influences and, and considerations. And the extent to which they are deeply embedded in the societies that they report on is, is also, I think, highly questionable. Let me illustrate this uh, with three extremely brief examples. Uh, and all of them derive from uh, the part of Africa that I'm most interested in in my fieldwork, which is the, the Great Lakes uh, region. Firstly, when the ICTR uh, was being set up in Tanzania, one of the central influences on the prosecutor's strategy for dealing with genocide crimes uh, was to bring in Alison DeForge, the kind of the doyen of Human Rights Watch, who had had a lengthy academic career writing on the Great Lakes, although that long academic career, interestingly, didn't feature much in the court proceedings. What was most of interest was the work that she had done with Human Rights Watch from sort of the early 1990s onwards. And it will be familiar to many of you that one of the key uh, influences of DeForge over the prosecutorial strategy was an insistence upon a very uh, structured idea of the hierarchies involved in the Rwandan genocide. That one of the main messages that DeForge, I think, uh, imparted to the prosecution was that we should understand the Rwandan genocide as a strictly top-down, elite-driven process, which therefore meant that the prosecution should focus on a handful of elites in Kigali who had conspired to generate the genocide in 1994, and that would be the best way in which justice could be done. And of course, as we well know, no cases of conspiracy to genocide were ever successfully proven um, in, in, in the ICTR. So uh, this, I would argue, is, is one important example of Human Rights Watch and one of their senior figures, in fact, constraining the, the knowledge and, and the narrative of how the genocide had actually played out. Secondly, uh, we have some fascinating recent refusals by the ICTR and a range of European courts, including the, the UK, to extradite or to transfer genocide suspects back to Rwanda for prosecution. And 
I'm involved in an ongoing extradition case in, in Westminster Magistrates Court uh, around this at the moment. Human Rights Watch's uh, analysis on Rwanda has been absolutely central to those courts' uh, decisions not to extradite back to Rwanda. And it's been uh, quite remarkable, I think, the deep respect with which lawyers and judges have treated Human Rights Watch evidence. In fact, I would go as far as to say that in the, uh, most of the ICTR transfer cases and in the UK High Court decision in 2008 not to transfer back to Rwanda, there was almost no critical appraisal of Human Rights Watch at all. In fact, if you look at the UK judgment in 2008, there is a 12-page section that is basically a cut-and-paste job out of a big report that Human Rights Watch put out on Rwanda in, in 2008. And the judges in that case went as far as to describe this as a formidable dossier of evidence about the functioning of the Rwandan judiciary. In fact, that Human Rights Watch report in 2008, as a Rwanda scholar, I think is a deeply flawed document. It's based on very patchy evidence. It's extremely anecdotal. There is a deep overlay of vociferous scepticism, a very emotive scepticism about the Rwandan judiciary right from the outset of that report. Criticisms of Rwanda's decision to use the Gachacha community courts and, and the list kind of goes on. And methodologically, almost that entire dossier is based on complaints that were made to Human Rights Watch analysts on the ground. So the report is not an objective, broad-ranging piece of research. It's actually been generated by complaints, which by definition means you're picking a handful of sometimes the worst cases and then trying to build a depiction of an entire country out of that. So, in fact, there, there, was, there was highly problematic elements that came out of that. In, uh, in 30 seconds, let me simply say, um, in the third example is, is a more recent one. In the case of Mbaru Shimana, um, a, a, an alleged Congolese warlord uh, before uh, the ICC. I should declare an interest in this, which is I was an expert witness for the defence. Um, but one of the key planks of the prosecution's case against Mbarashimana was that Human Rights Watch and other groups had said that this individual was clearly in control of major FDLR atrocities on the basis of the fact that some of his combatants had been heard speaking Kinyarwanda Therefore, they must have been members of the FDLR. And then, therefore, because we knew that Mbaru Shimano was the leader of the FDLR, that should be enough to bring charges against him. What we were able to show in that case was, firstly, the Human Rights Watch report on which these statements were made was itself highly factually unsound. More importantly than that, the prosecutor's office had not done independent investigations in order to verify the information that Human Rights Watch had brought forward. So there was a direct mimicking of human rights reporting in the trial uh, itself. And in this particular instance, the judges, in fact, recognised that and said that this investigation uh, was inadequate and the charges were thrown out before it even got to the confirmation stage. So what I would argue in relation to the big themes of this conference is that what we're actually seeing in, in a great deal of media reporting on conflict and in international trials is the central influence of advocacy groups that themselves, I think, need to be questioned in, in, in very, very serious ways. The, the, the specific impact of groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty has often been to streamline the narratives of often very messy conflicts on the ground in terms of their causes, their key actors and the effects uh, that, that they're having. Um, and secondly, that in doing so, what they have also um, been engaged in is preferencing a particular international prosecutorial model of transitional justice that itself is often involved in this simplification process to the detriment of other forms of transitional justice that human rights organisations and courts seem quite opposed to, for example, things like the Chacha in Rwanda, uh, rituals in northern Uganda, which are routinely denigrated by human rights groups. And you can look at the human rights reporting on Rwanda and Uganda over the last 10 years to see a, a, a vibrant uh, critique of local attempts at transitional justice. The net result of that, I would argue, is that we're seeing a narrowing of the transitional justice space because of how important this, this advocacy trend in transitional justice has become. And I think that that's actually highly problematic in terms of how societies are dealing with their own conflict. So it's a, it's a slightly complicated argument that I think has maybe got a bit ragged towards the end, but I'll blame the BBC for that. So uh, thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs> Filmmaker and founder of Old Street Films. 
His past documentaries have dealt with political issues around the world, but most notably in Southeast Asia. And his latest work, Enemies of the People, continues on this theme. Um, in a film that is both gripping and revelatory, Lemkin paired up with Seth Sambath, a senior journalist at the Phnom Penh Post in Cambodia, to finally get to the bottom of the atrocities that took place at the hands of Khmer Rouge. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, well, first of all, I say I, I kind of agree with Phil uh, on quite a lot of things. So what I'm going to talk about is, rather than make an argument, I'm just going to really talk to you about my experience of making this film, which was called Enemies of the People. And that was the film that we made. Um, took about took me about three years, and the person I worked with in Cambodia um, <coughs> a few years longer than that. And it was a film that was an attempt to understand what had happened in, in the Khmer Rouge years in Cambodia. Uh, it, we, uh, I started around the time that the international court began to be talked about as being possibly viable. Uh, this was in, I think, 2006. It was, began to be constituted, and that's, I, I started on this film at that time. And the court that was going to try the Khmer Rouge, and is now trying them, is called the Extraordinary, uh, what's it called? The Extraordinary Chambers and the Courts of Cambodia. The Extraordinary Courts and Chambers. No, the Extraordinary Chambers and the Courts of Cambodia. It's a hybrid court which is made up of Cambodian <coughs> judges and international judges. And the relationship between this film and our work uh, in making this film and doing other things related to the film and the courts is really what I'm going to talk about because there's been a lot of different relationships and the relationship, uh, this film was first completed in uh, end of 2009, beginning of 2010 and uh, it's had a lot of different interactions with the court in the last five years and I gave evidence myself at the court um, about two weeks ago or so. I didn't have to go, I just had to go down to the Saeed Business School for the video conference room. Um, but so there's been a number of different ways in which the material, uh, the work has interacted. And I think one of the questions in the, uh, the outline synopsis of this talk was, you know, do documentaries do more harm than good? And I would sort of say that in many cases they probably do an awful lot of harm. But I think that in this, I would want to make an argument that in the approach that we took with this film, uh, maybe in some very modest and humble way, did some good and maybe will do some good. Uh, the reason being that uh, what this film was really concerned with was to try to get the people who had perpetrated major acts of political violence in the Khmer Rouge regime to talk about it. No one, that had not been discussed uh, publicly prior to, to, this, to this film being made. It's not been discussed by anybody who had done something. Pol Pot, who had led the regime had spoken very briefly just before he died, but had not spoken in any detail. This film was made, one of the main characters in this film was Pol Pot's deputy, a man called Nun Chia, who now, at the age of 90, is, is on trial. He's actually just been convicted in the first trial of crimes against humanity. And um, he's now going to a second trial, which has already started. Uh, which is of genocide and various other international crimes and war crimes as well. Um, one of the curious things is that when this, when this film was first shown at the Sundance Film Festival, beginning of 2010, the judge who was basically building the investigating case against these two uh, elderly Khmer Rouge leaders asked if he could have a copy of the film because he needed it for his, prosecute, uh, for his uh, investigative bundle. And we declined to give it to him on the grounds that the, the, the way that we had worked making this film was that Khmer Rouge people who had an awful lot to be concerned about did not want to speak uh, to the court uh, or court officials or be involved in any kind of judicial process that they didn't necessarily uh, uh, sympathize with or recognize. And so it was important that what we were doing was something that was being done for history in order to try to understand what had happened during this period. And I think that that was uh, something that we stuck to uh, for some time. And there was a lot of criticism in American and British newspapers and in, in Asian newspapers of this decision to not bring this film in. Uh, but the court process being so slow, 
Uh, in fact, the film was then even released on DVD, and you know, the court was still going in the early stages of trial one, and so they brought the material in. But what they did that was very uh, curious, and they brought it in in a prosecutorial way, uh, and what, what was interesting was that they then, there's a, there was an extra film that was done in this, in this uh, DVD that was released, which was about a specific massacre. And uh, this was a massacre in which potentially several thousand people, up to 8,000 people were killed in uh, mid-April 1975. And Sambat and I went and interviewed eight of the people who were very low-level people who had been involved in this massacre. This came out in this DVD, and immediately the court decided to make this one of the main charges. And it is actually one of the only two charges that the two leaders of the Khmer Rouge have been convicted of. One is the massacre in this film, which they didn't start off by indicting them of doing. They, they, they indicted them of massacres generally, but they then went specifically to this particular massacre. When this film came out, they then sent, quite understandably, they then sent their teams, because they can't rely on just a piece of video from some people who are unattached and unregulated, like people, freelancers like us. Um, they sent their people to the place where this massacre had happened to interview people who had taken part and who'd been, uh, to try to find the people in the film. And of course, they didn't find anyone because they turn up with huge Range Rovers with logos and everybody's with the military uh, sort of officials with them and people with guns and so on. And, uh, you know, everybody just sort of uh, melts back into the forest and doesn't want to talk uh, because they know full well what all this is about. So as a result, they kind of continued. So the court went through listening to very second uh, sort of hearsay evidence. There wasn't a single person who had taken part in the massacre. There was one person who'd heard about it the day after. And these people were convicted, the two leaders of the Khmerians were convicted of killing more than 250 people because more than 250 people constituted a large-scale massacre. I don't remember what the actual legal term is, but it needed to be 250 plus. The reality of the people who were involved in the killing was that it was actually thousands of people. Uh, but the court uh, was not able to sort of um, uh, you know, find its own evidence concerning that. So there's a kind of a disjunct between uh, what a court like this and the, 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 the ECCC has, has cost many hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in its attempt to bring justice for the people of Cambodia. Uh, but there's a disjunct between what they really are able to do and what they, what they say they're able to do. Uh, I think uh, the, the impetus for this film, and certainly my work for several years working in the countryside in Cambodia, was that most people in Cambodia, particularly rural people, and it is more of a rural country than an urban country, uh, they, they, they are more interested to know why the killing fields happen. Uh, not that, that various old people are put in prison for the rest of their lives. They, they want to know why it happened. Now, the court has not really been engaged with any of that. Uh, to be fair, I think over the last year or two, as a result of uh, defense uh, legal team's efforts, the investigatory process has been a bit more thorough. But uh, essentially, the court has not been involved. And the reason why the court isn't involved is because the current government of Cambodia is run and staffed by many, many people who are on the other side of the Khmer Rouge from the Pol Pot Nunchir group. And these people know full well why the conflict happened and why the violence happened. And they can't possibly have this kind of understanding come out because, of course, this would be... Um, uh, well, this would be a reputational problem that they would have to deal with. I think. As a result of that, the court is seen by many people in Cambodia as really just going through a process and there being no real insight that's being, uh, that's, that, that, that's being, that's being uh, added. One of the things that um, the, the, the process of this film started, which I think uh, you know, would have to be said to be only very tentative and incohate, was that we uh, off the back of the film, we arranged various kind of truth, informal truth and reconciliation conferences in which the people who were in this film, not Nunchir because he was in prison, but the low-level killers who were in this film, many of whom have killed thousands of people with their bare hands, with knives and so on, 
uh, and, and incidentally have killed them on behalf of different factions within the Khmer Rouge. So there's a sort of uh, a serious major complexity there. Uh, these people came to a video conference place in Bangkok and they met via video link with Cambodian refugees who were living in California in Long Beach, which is the largest um, uh, sort of um, urban Cambodian diaspora community in the world. And these people who had been refugees had fled, had fled the killing fields and its associated violence of the, sort of the Vietnam War and the post um, uh, the fall of the Khmer Rouge. They had fled to America. These people were now talking to the, the, the killers who had been uh, the kind of people that had killed their families and so on directly. And, and there's, in, in this, in this uh, DVD that we released, there was about an hour or so of this video conference that was brought forward. And there have been some academic articles that have been produced from it. And they are, I think there was a kind of a step, this is going back to 2010, 2011. There was a sort of a small step that was taken forward in terms of communities beginning to maybe see, well, actually, one way or another, we are all sufferers from that time. Whether we were perpetrators or victims, we have all survived it uh, in, in various different ways. And actually, maybe there are lots of things for us to talk about. And that was beginning to come out in this, in this process. But of course, when there's a huge trial, which is concerned with issues of uh, guilt or otherwise, this, is, this kind of truth and reconciliation isn't possible. And uh, the, the, I, I think the, so my, my argument would be to say that, you know, whereas documentaries can do an awful lot of harm because they misrepresent things, the kind of things that Phil was talking about with um, people with agendas wanting to sort of um, put a headline strap of this, that, and the other, and distorting history. It is possible, but it's difficult. Uh, it's possible, and I think this film, in a kind of way, and there have been other films that maybe have attempted to do the same, that where you're in a real post-conflict situation which is extremely intense, and again, it does remain quite intense in Cambodia, even 30, 40 years after the event. Largely because, of course, the politics is still very relevant today. Uh, where, 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 where it remains intense, uh, it's, it's, it's important that people kind of, at some point, come to an understanding about what that history was. Just simply putting some people behind bars doesn't necessarily get, enable the society to really absorb what it was that happened to them. And with Cambodia, I think, and there may be other examples in other parts of the world, with Cambodia, I think it's really significant because as a result of a skewed view of what happened in the Khmer Rouge time, there's been a misunderstanding about what it was that uh, was driving the conflict. What was driving the conflict there in very great essence, in, in very simple essence, was, was a, a, the issue of national identity. And the problem for Cambodia at that time was that it was being borne down by the Cold War powers of America, China and the Soviet Union, so that the issue of national identity within Cambodia, which had obviously not come out of uh, come out of French colonial period just just recently at that time, uh, was put under huge strain, and the relationship between Cambodians or Khmer people and Vietnamese became a very massive contradictory issue. Something that then worked its way out through the problems of the political party, the, Com the Communist Party. And this was all kept completely secret, of course. We know that the world, the Cambodia, was sealed off from the world. And this conflict then raged inside the sealed borders of Cambodia. And as we know, hundreds of thousands, some say maybe millions, were killed. Certainly hundreds of thousands of people were killed, and many, many billions of people suffered very, very terribly. Uh, the problem of the relationship between Cambodia and Vietnam remains the same today. There is a huge amount of distrust. There is a huge amount of uh, potential uh, xenophobia that rises to the surface from time to time. And there, as Cambodia uh, now remains uh, in, this, in its same, naturally, in the same geographical position, uh, in a new era of world politics which may, or in which uh, the relationship between China and America may take, begin to take another kind of dynamic, and as we know, America is already becoming friendly with Vietnam again, Cambodia could, in the future, become a very vulnerable society. And there have been glimmers of that over the last two or three years with, with riots and things and you know, politicians seeking to play 
the race card, if you might, if you want to say that, in the same way that Pol Pot and Munchir did, which you know, was completely um, a big problem. And for that, for that to remain unexamined, but for it only to be considered as being this rather kind of caricature of bloodthirsty murdering and butchery, means that the society doesn't really have any understanding about why it got to this level of uh, violence, what this violence was really about. We can only understand it in terms of violence for the sake of violence, which is not an explanation for anything. So that's why people, I think, are disappointed in Cambodia, and I think that the court can never deliver that. And the, it's important that for Cambodia to be able to go forward as a society, that at some point some kind of truth and reconciliation and some kind of honest, some kind of uh, serious, critical research needs to be done on a kind of, both on a high level and on a kind of a community level. And I think in its very small way, and it is very small and very humble, approaches like this at least are there so that when the court is finished in five or ten years' time, hopefully other people can come forward to continue doing that kind of work. That's it. That's <laughs>you for um, inviting me to share with you um, what is now some 21 years investigating the circumstances of the 1994 genocide of um, the Tutsi. I, as Ella said, used to work for the Sunday Times and I left when Rupert Murdoch bought it in 1981. Um, I'd been on the Insight team uh, long-term investigative journalism um, which seemed no longer possible. Um, we were taught by Harry Evans, one of Fleet Street's great editors, that we were to hold all power to account no matter where. And I added to that list in 1994 the uh, secret and informal meetings of the Security Council of the United Nations. Um, I'm an old-fashioned journalist. I have a notebook um, and um, a pencil, and you can see by the size of my uh, briefcase how exactly how old-fashioned. But Ella said something yesterday that really struck a chord with me, and she put it so uh, brilliantly, that what we do is, whatever we use, is professional fact-finding, uh, we have to identity, identity uh, content, cross-referencing, and chain of custody. Um, and that is absolutely uh, the case uh, I've found um, with my work. Um, in, uh, in 1994, someone leaked to me an account of what was said in the secret and informal meetings of the UN Security Council held to discuss uh, what was happening in Rwanda. And we learned from that account, firstly, that it was the UK ambassador who first called for a withdrawal of the peacekeepers. He denies it today, but there it is in a document for all to see. Um, and that I, is holding power uh, to account. Um, and there was no discussion at all about civilian slaughter in those first three weeks. The whole focus of attention was whether or not to leave the peacekeepers in place um, and whether or not a ceasefire was possible um, in the 
uh, civil war. I was at the UN filming my book with Channel 4. It became a series on Channel 4 television called UN Blues. So I was there outside the council in April 1994. And we covered in that documentary the three great tragedies that uh, um, marked the post-Cold War world. Somalia, former Yugoslavia um, and Rwanda. Believe it or not, in 1992, as I showed in the UN book, um, a meeting of the Security Council was held at summit level for the very first time. And because of the post-Cold War dividend, the world's leaders promised that finally the UN would act as its founders intended. Well, as you all know, this was not um, the case. Um, the genocide of the Tutsi of Rwanda broke the world's most atrocious records. In the first weeks, an estimated 10,000 people were killed every day, and mostly in large-scale massacres in churches, clinics, hospitals and schools. Anywhere Tutsi families fled looking for sanctuary. To economise on ammunition, the children and elderly were killed mainly by machete, while most young adults who could run faster were killed by firearms. Whole families and communities disappeared, and at one football stadium at Gatwaro, an estimated 2,500 families were entirely wiped out. Some survivors told me that in April 1994 they believed the apocalypse had come. The chief delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Philippe Gaillard, ran an emergency hospital in Kigali throughout. I consider it to be one of the most extraordinary humanitarian operations of our age. He told me I spent a week with Philippe in 1996. No one had talked to him at all. Here he was, a direct witness to genocide, and no one had talked to him. He told me that he'd seen what has happened in Rwanda in the cast of monsters descending into the hell of Dante. The sexual violence was an integral part of the genocide strategy. It was intended to cause physical and psychological destruction of Tutsi women, their families and their communities. I've spoken to lawyers and clerks at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda who were provided counselling to cope with the evidence that they were living with day after day. I think the sadism and the brutality of the genocide is forgotten today. There are now hundreds of genocide fugitives living with refugees, uh, living with refugee status in the US, in the UK, France, Belgium and the ne Netherlands. Some of these fugitives are well known and the subject of Interpol arrest notices. It is somewhat astonishing to me that with all the electronic capability the US possesses, it seems incapable of locating the genocide financier Felicien Kabuga. In France, it is left to civil society to track fugitives and to try to bring them to book. Um, I was lucky in my work to have been granted unprecedented access to archives. Kofi Annan at the UN allowed me into the records of UNAMIR, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Rwanda, before they had been archived. In Rwanda, I was allowed access to seven major collection of documents. These were the documents left behind by ministries, by the genocidaire, when they fled in July 1994. These are extraordinary records. When I first saw the two huge shipping containers um, of the records of the office of the former president, uh, President Juvenel Habyarimana, I knew that I was looking 
at a UNESCO heritage uh, site. Um, but I have found very little interest within the government of Rwanda too as to the preservation of those vital records. Today, from exile, the fugitives promote the Hutu power racist ideology that underpinned the genocide. They spread denial and disinformation. There is a network which wields continuing and pernicious influence using skills which proved so useful during the genocide itself, propaganda and disinformation. There are Hutu power cells in Paris, London and Brussels, throughout the Netherlands, in North America and in African countries. They help others to escape. They provide false papers and facilitate money transfers. Their armed wing, the FDLR, a brutal militia, is a direct descendant of the army which committed genocide and it receives support from cells abroad. When the ICTR closes its doors, they hope no one will come for them. Not until 2009, in a report by a UN group of experts, was this network finally exposed and cells abroad revealed. These people continue to believe a racist notion that a Hutu, the Hutu, constitute a distinct political category and that political parties are by their nature to be created along Hutu-Tutsi divisions. Whole aspects of the genocide of the Tutsi remain unexplored. I work full-time on this, and I am overwhelmed by the work that there is still to be done. Um, for instance, I know of no major study on the Intra-Hamway Militia, indoctrinated in an absurd ideology, a sadistic youth army, a central element in the extermination plan, its strategically placed roadblocks intended to prevent escape, and its high level of organisation. The Interahamwe had committees covering social and legal affairs, committees to discuss propaganda and documentation. Um, on the ICTR uh, records, um, I know that there is um, uh, an admission by an Intrahamway leader. The investigation uh, into the Intrahamway includes 60 hours with this Intrahamway leader, which I understand is still withheld by the court. I'm extremely concerned at the number of documents that are still withheld at the ICTR and cannot be consulted by journalists and academics. Our knowledge is certainly limited. The part played by the hierarchy of the Catholic Church may take several more decades to unravel, including details of the help afforded by the Catholic Church to genocide suspects who escaped abroad. The extent and reach of French influence on events remains forever unclear. The astonishing conclusion by journalists in France is that giving, given all the evidence, French officials seem to have been actually complicit in the genocide and involved in the training of the militia. French military operatives lived secretly under pseudonyms and they knowingly aided and abetted Rwanda's catastrophe. Senior French military officers lived alongside Rwandan army commanders in military barracks as technical advisers. I want to know why these French officers have given testimony in defence of the genocidaire at the ICTR. In documents recently declassified to me from the UK government, Further details are available about how denial of genocide was present at the outset. As the massacres got underway, an international diplomatic effort by Rwandan ambassadors tried to persuade the world that the large numbers of civilian casualties in Rwanda were due to fighting 
in a resumed civil war. Once in exile, the perpetrators devised a denial strategy helped by Belgium lawyers who came to Goma, then Zaire, to give advice about the presence of names on the lists of suspects. Once at the ICTR, the perpetrators adopted a common defence strategy which rested on the claim that the killing of civilians in Rwanda was spontaneous and that it had not been planned. From these camps in the DRC, the denial spread worldwide. A Rwandan academic, Dr Gatsinzi Basinyezi, has categorised the denial in four distinct areas. The first strategy was to erroneously describe the genocide as civil war. The second was to deny it happened and that there was um, a, no intent and that the killing had been spontaneous. The third was to, to claim there'd been a double genocide and that the Tutsi had also killed Hutu in what was in reality an inter-ethnic conflict, so each annulled the other. And the fourth is to deny genocide by deliberate ambiguity, a lack of precision so as to spread confusion about what really happened. A worldwide network of ICTR defence lawyers, academics and journalists continues to support the defence case in whole or in part. Denial is recognised today as an integral part of the crime of genocide. It is intended to spread confusion, cause doubt and destroy truth and memory. Deniers attempt to minimise the scale and the status of the crime and denial continues long after the killing is over. It is for all these reasons, and I will finally address the subject of this panel or one of them, it is for all these reasons that the content of a BBC documentary, Rwanda's Untold Story, is so troubling. The documentary is the subject of the most severe criticism, and it is the subject of a formal complaint to the BBC, which is currently under consideration by trustees. In this complaint, the BBC programme makers are accused of promoting genocide denial. The list of signatures is available on my website. The genocide of the Tutsi needs to remain a focal point. There is still so much to research, and silence only gives succour to perpetrators and all those who deny the genocide of the Tutsi ever happened. Thank you.